Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. This is World Report. Good morning. I'm Marcia Young. A public funeral for Alexei Navalny is scheduled for the end of this week. The Russian opposition leader died at an Arctic penal colony on February 16. His supporters, along with many Western leaders, hold the Kremlin directly responsible for his death, and so does his widow. Yulia Navalny addressed the EU parliament in Strasbourg, France, earlier this morning. Barr Stewart has more on her message. And Putin must ask for, for everything he has done. Yulia Navalnaya made an emotional appeal to the European Parliament, saying Russia's president should not only be held accountable for her husband's death, but for the war he's waged in Ukraine and for what he's done to Russia. She says a public funeral is planned for Alexei Navalny on Friday afternoon in Moscow. And I'm not sure yet whether it will be peaceful or whether the police will arrest those who have come to say goodbye to my husband. Navalny will be buried a short time later. His allies said they struggled to find a place to hold a service because owners would refuse as soon as they heard the name Navalny. They've also accused President Vladimir Putin of having him killed because U.S. and German officials had suggested that he be freed as part of a prisoner swap. There's been no official confirmation of those claims. He represented hope. Roberta Metzola is the president of the European Parliament, which she says is united in condemning Navalny's death. It is a crime that deserves an international and independent investigation. The world is owed justice. Navalnaya went on to urge lawmakers to do more to hurt Putin's power by targeting Russian money that has been stashed in banks abroad. She also said that European countries should be helping the tens of millions of Russians who are against the war and against Putin, some of whom fled the country in the past two years. Briar Stewart, CBC News, London. Volodymyr Zelensky is in Albania today for a security summit with leaders from Southeast Europe. The Ukrainian president is trying to rally international support as the Russian invasion enters its third year. Peace and security in Ukraine are topping the agenda. But Zelensky is also looking for defense cooperation that will see the co-production of weapons. He says Europe needs to prepare for Vladimir Putin's next steps. It's important, yes, to be strong. We don't have time. And we don't have alternative because all of us, we have deal now with a killer, just a killer. Yes, Hitler, part two. As support for Ukraine falters in the U.S., Kiev has been losing ground to Russia along the front lines. Donald Trump and Joe Biden have both won their party's presidential primary in Michigan. But for Biden, the results were mixed. Tens of thousands of Arab Americans marked their ballots uncommitted. They withdrew their support for Biden over his stance on the crisis in Gaza. The CBC's Richard Madden is in Washington. And Richard, what does this mean for Joe Biden? 
Well, the good news for Biden is he easily won his primary, but Democratic voters also gave him a loud and clear warning sign they're not happy with his handling of the Israel-Hamas war and his refusal to support a ceasefire. Now, at this point, an estimated 30,000 Democrats, or 3% overall, voted uncommitted, basically a protest vote and a message they don't want him on the ballot. Now, organizers of the uncommitted movement say the results surpass their expectations. They insist they're not looking to dump Biden, but pressure top Democrats to prioritize an end to the war. Take a listen to State Representative Abraham Ayash, who was part of that campaign. Voters came out with a lot of enthusiasm with that commitment. Now the question has to be to President Biden and his campaign, what will they do to heed the call of these people that have come out and said, we are a pro-peace, anti-war movement that wants our leaders to be better. Now, it's worth noting Trump won Michigan by a razor-thin 10,000 votes in 2016. Biden flipped it in 2020. So Democrats can't afford to lose many more detractors or for their fellow Democrats to simply stay home in November. On the Republican side, this is the fifth straight loss for Donald Trump's last remaining rival. What does this result mean in Michigan for Nikki Haley? Yeah, in a nutshell, Nikki Haley is running out of time and a path to victory. Trump is nearly a lock to seal the Republican presidential nomination. But Haley also says the results overall show between 30 to 40 percent of Republicans don't support Trump, saying he may win the nomination, but not the general. That's why she plans to stay in the race until at least Super Tuesday or until she runs out of cash. All right. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. The CBC's Richard Madden in Washington. Despite spending billions of dollars on incentives, South Korea's fertility rate has hit a new record low. An official with Statistics Korea saying the number of newborns in 2023 was down nearly 8% from the year before. South Korea already had the world's lowest fertility rate. This is the fourth year in a row that the country's population has declined. Concerns are growing for the country's economy and pensions, giving the aging population. Projections show in 50 years, South Korea's working age group will have decreased by half. By that time, nearly half of the population will be over the age of 65. The South Korean government says reversing the falling birth rate is a national priority. A Manitoba court judge has given animal welfare advocates the green light to privately prosecute a live horse exporter in the province. The ruling is believed to be the first in relation to farmed animals. Canada is among the leading exporters of live horses in the world. They're bred specifically for human consumption. As Karen Pauls tells us, it is an industry worth tens of millions of dollars a year. Then they'll be crated inside the cargo building with three to four other horses. Dana Tong of Manitoba Animal Save says in December 2022, she documented 79 horses on the tarmac at the Winnipeg airport awaiting a cargo plane to Japan, where their meat served raw is a delicacy. It's a very stressful time for them. Weather delays meant that flight exceeded the 28-hour limit for transporting live animals without food, water or rest. Animal rights activists filed 
filed a complaint with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, which acknowledged the breach, but said there would be no penalty. Tuesday, a Manitoba court judge gave Caitlin Mitchell and the non-profit group Animal Justice the right to charge Manitoba's Carlisle Farms in a private prosecution for failing to have a contingency plan to respond to unforeseen delays that could result in the suffering of an animal. The least that we can do is to make sure that what few laws we do have are actually enforced. Lyle Lumax is the exporter. He defends the decision. It's going to take way more than three hours to put them back in the trucks and then five and a half hours home. Everybody there said, oh, this is far, far less problem for the horses. Live exports are banned in the United States and Britain. In 2021, Canada's Prime Minister vowed to end exports of live horses for slaughter. There's a private member's bill before Parliament now. Karen Pauls, CBC News, Winnipeg. New Brunswick is hoping a new approach to home construction will help solve the province's housing shortage. Like most provinces, New Brunswick is seeing demand outstrip supply. A provincial report says thick thousand new homes are needed every year. As Alexander Silberman reports, large-scale modular construction could be the key to affordable housing. Entire homes are under construction inside a house factory just north of Moncton in New Brunswick. Wall by wall, they take shape quickly before being loaded onto trucks for delivery. Provincial Housing Minister Jill Green says modular construction to be key to addressing the housing shortage. More than 10,000 households are waiting for public housing, a list that has doubled over the past four years. We'll be seeing duplexes and triplexes and, and full developments made with modular housing as well. The province hopes existing manufacturers, which primarily build mini homes, will pivot to also build apartments. It plans to build nearly 200 public housing units this summer, with more than half modular. A 10-unit building, and you'll have different modular units that all get put together like Lego. The biggest advantage is speed. Brandon Searle leads the Offsite Construction Research Centre at the University of New Brunswick. Now in modular, you're able to do the first, second and third floor in parallel to the civil work being done. The construction industry says modular on a large scale is a major change and the supply chain needs to catch up. But the growing demand and funding from government could convince them to adapt. Alexander Silverman, CBC News, Fredericton. And that is the latest national and international news from World Report. I'm Marcia Young. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.